0: I want you to try this morning to imagine a scene with me. We call that scene the Last Supper. It's a scene where Jesus is gathered in a little upper room with his disciples. They're enjoying a meal. Now, I say you have to use your imagination because we kind of here in our culture think about an important meal. We all gather around a big dining room table with big high back chairs and it's kind of a formal deal, but this would have looked more like a bunch of college students hanging out in a dorm room, all right? It was very informal, casual. And leading up to this moment, there had been a week of events that had prepared the disciples for this moment, and yet they still were and all what was taking place if you remember just a few days before this event on this evening jesus and the disciples had made their final entrance into jerusalem and it wasn't just your ordinary entrance into jerusalem when they came into Jerusalem, the, the city of Jerusalem had gathered and, and they laid palm branches on the ground and they threw their coats on the ground. And the, the streets were lined with multitudes of people screaming, Hosanna! Hosanna! As we sang just a few minutes ago, hands were raised, people were worshiping, they were celebrating Jesus coming in, and the disciples are caught up in the fervor and the excitement of everything that's going on around them. And yet, they noticed on the face of Jesus there was a a sternness, a determination. He was unfazed by celebration that was happening around him. And then he began to say some things like the gospel of John records for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have light. So put yourself in the place of the disciples. They're They're in the midst of this celebration. I mean, they they show up in Jerusalem like they own the place, right? I mean, the party is all about them. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, for a little while, you got the light. And then it's to leave, no doubt, Jesus, a little later on in the week in Matthew 26, the Bible says he looks at his disciples and he says, you know, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. You're talking about highs and lows in one week. I mean, they show up in Jerusalem like rock stars and midweek Jesus says, hey, by the time this is all over, they're going to be nailing me to a cross. he leads them up in a little upper room and there you can imagine bewildered i mean they they don't even know what to do with the emotional cycle that they're on this week it's just overwhelming and when he takes them into the room, he, he catches them completely off guard because he takes this, this, this basin, this vase of water, and he takes a rag, a towel, and he, he begins to wash their feet. And now, you and I have read that in the Bible so many times that we've kind of churched it up and made it this spiritual moment where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. But you've got to understand what was going on in that moment. You see, this wasn't like something they didn't do all the time. In Jesus' day, people walked everywhere they went, many of them barefoot, some had open sandals, but what it meant was on those dirty, dusty Jerusalem roads, when you arrived at somebody's home, your feet were covered in all kind of junk. I mean, it was messy, and so the lowest slave in the house was designated so that when guests arrived to the house, their job was to remove the sandals and wipe all the dirt of Jerusalem off their feet so they didn't track that all over the house. So here they show up in the upper room, and guess who grabs the towel on the water? It's Jesus himself. And that's why Peter reacts and says, no way, this ain't happening here. Jesus assumes the role of the lowest servant in the house. And after washing their feet, they begin to enjoy a meal together. And you can imagine some of the silence that probably was in the room as Jesus is washing their feet. I mean, nobody knows what to say, much less wants to say anything. I mean, here's God in the flesh, like the lowest servant in the house, washing the dirt off of your feet. and then they start having this meal and at a point in the meal the way the gospels describe it you can tell when Jesus started what he was about to do next everybody in the room was just captivated he took some bread he broke it he looked at his disciples and he said take eat it this is my body and I want you to do this so you don't forget from this point on I want you to do this so you can remember what's about to happen now again we look back on those words with 2,000 years of clarity we know what was about to happen when they left the upper room they didn't know what was about to happen when they left the upper room Jesus is handing them this and they're thinking what is going on then he takes the cup and he says "This, this cup represents my blood it's for you take it, drink it and I want you to do this So that you never forget this moment. So that you never forget what's about to happen. Now we know the rest of the story. Jesus leads them out of that upper room. Probably in silence, much like as in this room today. He leads them through the Kidron Valley. Up to the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and... The disciples pray, and the disciples sleep, and then they pray, and then they sleep. And then the soldiers come in, and they arrest Jesus. and They run Him through a series of mock trials, 11 trials in one night. It's a travesty of justice in their system. And the next day, they brutalize Jesus by beating Him. And they march him out to a hill called Golgotha. And there they nail him to a cross. And they crucify him for all the world to see. He dies. Then on Sunday morning. Thank God for Sunday morning. Amen. I mean, hey, that's not all the story. On Sunday morning, Jesus defeats Death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus comes back to life. God raises him from the dead. Can you imagine the power of the worship experience when those Christians got together on that Sunday night and somebody said, Hey, where's some bread? They began with hands trembling because the last time they'd witnessed it, they'd seen Jesus himself do this and now over the last three days, they'd seen this unbelievable event play out in, in history and now they're holding the bread. Remember what he said? This is his body. I, I can only imagine that for the next few weeks and months, every time the church got together, to celebrate what we're going to be doing today that we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. I can only imagine that every time the church gathered to do that, for the first few weeks and months and maybe even years, every time they gathered to do it, somebody was leading that moment who had either seen it themselves or they'd been told firsthand by somebody who saw it themselves exactly what happened in the upper room that night. So in this moment of a a moving experience of worship, the early church practiced communion. And then in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul taught us as the church how we are to continue in that practice. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read some verses out of there this morning. But but here's, here's the tragedy, all right? We're now 2,000 years this side of that moment. And you know what we've done? We've let what was one of the most moving powerful worship experiences in the early church become a little five minute tradition that we tag on to the end of a service as we walk out the door and we've missed the very essence of why Jesus gave us this practice there's meaning, there's value I want to read it me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, this morning, what we're going to do together is we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, out of these verses, I want to ask and answer two questions. Now, these two questions are interesting because one of them is a question that we get asked all the time. By new folks when they come to our church, by people when they're going through our membership process, this is a question we get asked all the time. And to be totally honest with you, it's a completely insignificant question. But there's another question that we don't get asked hardly ever. And it's a very important question. So let's look at the two questions, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Here's the first question. When do we do this? Or some people ask it this way. How often do we do this at Hope? Because some people will come, and they'll come for a few weeks, maybe a month, month and a half, two months, and we hadn't taken the Lord's Supper yet, and they're like, What's the deal here? Why, why are we, how often do we do this? Because we have a church that a lot of people here come from a lot of different religious and, 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 and denominational backgrounds. Many have come to Christ, never been in church. And so just a lot of question about how often and when do we do this? Well, I want to, uh, this morning, speak to that issue because some people are very adamant. When it comes to when you ought to do this, some people are extremely adamant that you have to do the Lord's Supper every single week. I mean, I can't be right this week if I don't get to take the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a ritual that I have to do every week. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that's got to be a part of my life every single week. And they just are dogmatic that we have to do it every week. You can't, it's not church until I get the, the wafer and the juice, right? I mean, I got to have that. Some people are just as adamant that it's to be done once a quarter. You know, we only do it quarterly. Or Some people are, are, are very dogmatic that we should do it monthly, the first Sunday of the month. Some are, some are equally as passionate that it, it replaced the Passover in the Old Testament. And so in replacement of the Passover, it should only be done once a year. So which one's right? I want to read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we just read it. I want to read you the only place in the Bible that the Bible speaks to the issue of how often we're to do this. Look at it. It's in verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Don't miss it. Here it comes. As often as. That's it. That's all the Bible, matter of fact, it repeats it in verse 26, for as often as. Now, here's why I make a a big deal about that as we begin. I hope you understand, this really is an insignificant question, but it's significant because so many people divide over it. The point is, every church, every fellowship has the freedom in Christ to observe and practice the Lord's Supper as often as they like. It can be weekly, it can be monthly, it can be quarterly. The oftenness with which we do it is not significant. The reason why we do it is incredibly significant. So at Hope, we've chosen to do this about three or four times a year because when we do it, we dedicate the entire service like you've heard from the first song to the last song to the message to the end. Everything we do from beginning to end is designed to cause us to reflect on and to meditate on all that was accomplished for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's how often we do to hope. So here's the second question. And this is one that's real important and almost nobody ever asks. Here's the second question. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we take the Lord's Supper together? Because at Hope, we say often that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a what? relationship, right? Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations, rituals and ceremonies. Then why are we practicing this together? Because God gave us this for a significant purpose to to enjoy our fellowship with Him and our fellowship with one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. And what I want to give you this morning, before we take it, are four reasons why we do this. Here's the first one. The Lord's Supper invites me to remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. Now, with each of these statements, I'm going to underline a key word so that you can remember it. But the word here is remember. The Lord's Supper invites me to remember all that the gospel accomplished in the past. Jesus said it this way. He said, do this in remembrance of me. The word remembrance is a word that literally means a memorial. It's a word that, that, that describes the bringing back into my mind A vivid experience from the past and reflecting on and meditating on that experience, a memorial. Why do we have memorial services when somebody passes away? We have a memorial service when somebody passes away so that we can come together and remember all that they live for, remember all that their, their life accomplished and celebrate the reality that their life has made an impact on our lives. That's why we do it. That's what a memorial is. Jesus invites us through this supper to remember. Listen to the way Alan Redpath describes it. Look at this quote on the screen. It is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work that we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. He points us back, not to his life or example but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. It's an opportunity for us to remember. And when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, there are two elements of it, the bread and the cup, and both of those pictures that Jesus gave us represent incredible doctrines upon which the gospel is founded for example when jesus gave us the bread he said take this bread this is my body the reason that bread is a part of this communion practice is because it represents the body of jesus christ what is the great doctrine that's represented by the body of jesus here's the doctrine it's what we call the doctrine of the incarnation you say what in the world is that here it is in a simple statement god became a man That in and of itself ought to make us shout hallelujah, amen. God became a man. The God that spoke everything you and I can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. The God who existed outside of the parameters of time. The God who spoke time into existence. The God who one day will bring all of time to an end. That very God who for all eternity has sat as the sovereign God of the universe. That God took on human flesh and became a man and dwelt among us. Paul said it this way in the book of Colossians. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Here's what that means. Jesus is all that God is with skin on. You say, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal Because in order for us to have a Savior, we needed one who was qualified. And in order to be qualified, he had to perfectly fulfill the law of God. We needed a holy, sinless Savior. None of us were qualified. It took God becoming a man to provide for us a qualified Savior. When we partake of the Lord's Supper and when we take that bread, we are understanding the reality that God chose to become a man for us. But then he says, take the cup. The cup represents a different doctrine, not just the doctrine of the incarnation and the bread, but the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. You say, what is that? Here's the substitutionary atonement a simple statement. Christ died for us. Now listen, Jesus didn't just die for me so I wouldn't have to. Jesus died for me because I couldn't. Die for myself. You see, I wasn't qualified. I needed a savior. I needed a substitute. I could die and go to hell for all eternity, and I would never be able to pay for my sin against a holy God. It took a holy one taking my sin on himself and dying in my place, and that's exactly who Jesus is. The Bible says that Jesus came into this world. Let me read it to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at it on the screen. I want you to read it out loud with me. One, two, three. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did you hear it right there? He said he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. But then look at the next phrase, so that. That's an important so that. It means here's why. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the picture. On the cross, Jesus took all of my sin and all of your sin. He took it on himself and he became sin for us. And on the cross, God in his holiness poured out the wrath of God against sin on the person of Jesus Christ in my place. Why did he do that? So that I could become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the beauty. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, understanding that he paid for all of my sins, I am granted by grace the forgiveness of God and I'm declared by God to be righteous. Not because I deserve that. Not because I earned that. That's the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not, listen, listen, listen. Oh, it's better than that. Listen. There's not one thing that I have to do today to earn my righteousness before God. You know why? Because Jesus did it all for me on the cross. Everything that needed to be done for me to be declared righteous before God was accomplished. So when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering We're not just blowing through an experience to get a little pick-me-up. We're remembering everything that Jesus accomplished for us in the past. Now, some, I believe, in error here, begin to teach that when we take the Lord's Supper, we literally experience the body and the blood of Christ. Maybe some of you have come from a background that that's what you've been taught. That when we take the Lord's Supper, it literally becomes His body and it becomes His blood. Let me give you three reasons why I don't believe in a literal interpretation. When Jesus said, this is my body, I don't think He meant literally this is my body. Let me give you three reasons why I don't believe that. Number one, the words of Jesus. What did He say? He said, do this. In remembrance of me. Now, listen, he could have said, Do this to experience me. We, as evangelical Christians, believe in something called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Let me tell you what that means. We believe that every word of God. Every word in the Bible is inspired by God and sovereignly chosen by Him to be profitable to us. So when there's a word in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. Jesus didn't say, do this to experience me. He said, do this to remember as a memorial of me. Second reason I don't believe it's literal is because the presence of Jesus. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. When Jesus said it, He was in the room. He said, here, guys, take this bread. This is my body. Now, you got to understand, when he did that, he did that in his incarnate state as God coming as a man. Philippians teaches us, Philippians teaches us that when Jesus became a man, when God took on human flesh, he didn't stop being God, but he laid aside the privileges of being God. He emptied himself. If Jesus was literally in the room with them and the bread literally was his body at the same time, Jesus would have been in two places at once, and it deemphasizes the great doctrine of the incarnation that God became a man. Third reason I don't believe it's literal is because of the pattern of Jesus to use figurative language in his teaching. Jesus at one point said, I am the door. He didn't literally mean he was a piece of wood with hinges and a handle. Jesus said, I am the vine. He didn't mean he was a piece of green vegetation trailing along a a trellis. Jesus said, I am the living water. He didn't literally mean he was a cup of cold water that you could come get a drink of. He was speaking figuratively. This is not uncommon with how Jesus would teach and illustrate in the New Testament. It's much like, This that I have right here with me today. If I were to say to you today, this is my wife. Now, this is a picture from my office that sits on my desk of my wife. If I were to say to you, this is my wife. There's not one person in this room who, when I say that, what you just thought was, wow. Pastor Vance is married to a 5 by 7 piece of photographic film contained in a 5 by 7 frame that he picked up at Walmart, right? I mean, none of you thought that I literally meant this is my wife. I mean, if you think that I'm going home tonight and this is laying beside me in the bed, there are TV shows about you on television, right? <laughs> I mean, we need to check you out before you leave. If, if the first thought that you had is, wow, Pastor Vance is married to a photo album. Then, then something is something's not going all the way up, right? I mean, that'd be problematic. If, if you're still having a hard time being convinced that this is not literally my wife, well, we need to help you after the service, all right? When I say this is my wife, what I mean is this is a picture that represents my wife. Now, it sits on my desk in my office. Why? As a reminder. Throughout the day when I see that picture, I'll pray for my wife. Throughout the day when I see that picture, sometimes I'll send my wife a text to let her know I care about her and I love her and I'm thankful for her. That's what the picture's for. Listen, when Jesus took the bread and broke it, nobody in the room thought, oh my gosh, we're about to eat Jesus. That was not on anybody's mind, trust me. That's not what they were thinking. When Jesus said, this is my body, they understood what he was saying is, I'm giving you a picture. It's an important picture. So that as you look back on this moment, you can remember everything that I've accomplished. So that's the first one. Let me give you the second one. The Lord's Supper allows me to proclaim the power of the gospel in the present. The Lord's Supper allows me to proclaim the power of the gospel in the present. Second words, proclaim. Paul says it here in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Every time we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're making a proclamation. And this word proclaim here, it's used over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And every time it's used in the book of Acts, it refers to the early church preaching, proclaiming, announcing, making known... The gospel. What Paul is saying here is that every time we come together and take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity for us to proclaim the glorious power of the gospel. Listen, we're living in a dangerous day in the church in America. Let me tell you why it's dangerous. We are more consumed with self help philosophy, felt needs, and prosperity than we are the cornerstone of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me be real honest here. Our church cannot save you. Our church, our philosophies, our methodologies, we can't help you. There's only hope for our city and the world in one thing. And that one thing is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope for our world, the only hope for our city, the only hope for our lives is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we are faithful to preach and to proclaim and to announce the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can stand with boldness knowing we can't change anybody's life, but listen to me. Jesus Christ can, and through the power of the gospel, Jesus can restore families. Through the power of the gospel, Jesus can break the chains that that drag us down. Through the power of the gospel, we can be set free to know the forgiveness of God and live in a relationship with him. Every time we come together, I believe Jesus gave us this practice as an anchor. Because he knew the temptation in our flesh to drift away from the power of the gospel. And he knew at least whenever we did this today, we'd have to be reminded of the power of the gospel. Listen to the way Oswald Chambers said it. He said the creative power of the redemption of God works in the souls of men only through the preaching of the gospel. Now, who are we preaching to today? As we come together to take this supper, who are we proclaiming the gospel to? Well, there are really two audiences. Number one, we're proclaiming it to each other. You know one of the great dangers of being a Christian? Is that you begin to forget about the power of the gospel. Listen, if you have in your mind that the gospel is like the ABCs and I've moved on to deeper stuff, you need to have a revival with the gospel. You need to come back and understand the gospel saved me. The gospel changes me. I live my life. My identity is wrapped up in who I am in Christ because of the gospel. Don't ever get over the gospel. The gospel's not the ABCs. The gospel's the whole alphabet. It's everything about following Jesus. And so today as believers, we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. But let me tell you what else we're preaching the gospel to today. I think when, when Jesus gave us this, he knew that as we gathered... There would also be people who would come who don't know him, who are not believers. Now, maybe you're here today, and maybe you're here because a friend invited you. Maybe you're here because a family member has been on you about coming to church with them. Maybe you're here just because you drove by and saw it and thought, you know, I'm going to check church out and see what that's all about. One of the reasons Jesus gave us this practice today is so that we'd be faithful to tell you about what changed us. There was a day when I was sitting right where you are. There was a day when I was sitting in a church and I didn't know God. There was a day that I didn't understand the gospel. There was a day when I wasn't even sure if this whole God thing was for real. And then through someone's preaching of the gospel and telling me about what Jesus did on the cross for me, let me tell you what happened to me. Over 25 years ago now, I was born again into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I received the forgiveness of God in my life for my sins. I was given by God's grace a relationship with himself. And Jesus Christ has now changed my life. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never had a relationship with God, let me, let me be real honest with you. There's not one thing that taking the Lord's Supper can do for you. You can buy at Walmart the same stuff we're going to serve here in just a minute. Not anything mystical or magical or spiritual about it. Let me tell you why this has meaning to us today. It has meaning to us because it's a picture that represents something. See, taking this supper without having the relationship is like having this photo on your desk with somebody's picture in it you don't even know. If I come to your office and you still got the stock photo in there... You see, this supper only has meaning when you have a relationship with the person who's in the picture it's portraying. Does that make sense? So one of the reasons God gave us this is so we'd be faithful to you. Listen, one of the reasons Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. We're honored that you would come, and I want you to hear this statement. If you're here today, you need to know one of the reasons 2,000 years ago Jesus gave us this supper is because he loves you, and he wanted you to hear the faithfulness of the gospel proclaimed through this supper. It's God's way of saying to you, I love you, and I want to know you, and I want to forgive you, and I want you to know me. So we proclaim. Third reason, we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper inspires me to celebrate all that the gospel will accomplish in the future. Look at verse 26 again. He said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's an important until. You know why? What Paul is saying is you're not going to do this forever. One day, one glorious day, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, we won't need a memorial supper. It's going to be replaced with the marriage supper of the Lamb. We won't need the picture anymore because we'll have the person, right? Hey, I I travel a lot. And sometimes when I travel, I'll be gone three or four, sometimes six or eight or 10 or 11 days at a time. And you know what? I I find myself on one of those long trips Just about every time I'm sitting on the airplane, I'll pull out my iPhone, and I'll start flipping through the pictures of my family. And I'll just kind of catch myself smiling and thinking about my family as I flip through those pictures, and I'm just thinking about them. But you know what I've noticed? When I'm home, I don't ever pull out the pictures. You know why? I don't need them. I have the people. You see what we're doing today? We're pulling out the picture to remember, to reflect. But listen to me. When he comes, we don't need the pictures anymore because we have the person, Jesus himself. One day we get to be with him forever. And that's what Paul means when he says, until he comes. So when we're taking the Lord's Supper, this is also celebrating the reality, not the hope so, we're celebrating the reality that Jesus is coming again fourth reason we do this the lord's supper encourages me to examine the impact of the gospel in my life today there's the fourth word examine remember proclaim celebrate examine i'm to examine the impact of the gospel in my life today you see because of the gospel i now have a personal relationship with god but i also have a personal relationship with my brothers and sisters in christ god's family And Paul is giving us specific instruction here that we are to examine those relationships when we take the Lord's Supper. When we come together to do this, it's not just a little ritual that we go through, but we're to do some real hard examination. Paul says here in verse 28 that we're to examine. A man must examine himself. The word examine is a word that means to test by questioning, it means to put to trial. I'm to put to trial my walk with Jesus. Here's what that means First of all, I should examine my relationship with God. I should ask some hard questions. Here's the first question you need to wrestle with. Do I even know God? I've already said it. If you don't know God, if you're just playing church, going through the motions, if you don't know God, there's no meaning in what we're doing for you today. Do you know? Have you ever been born again into a relationship with Jesus? In just a few moments, we're going to begin to take the Lord's Supper together. When we do, We're going to have some of our pastors right down here at the front while others are taking the Lord's Supper. If you've never come to know God, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to come right down here to one of our pastors and just say to them, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you how you can experience the forgiveness of God and be born again into a personal relationship with Him. Do I know God? But if you already know God, which many of you today do... The second question you need to ask is, is there anything in my relationship with God that's hindering my fellowship with Him? You see, once we know God, once we have a relationship with God, nothing will ever change that relationship. But you can hinder the fellowship. It's like with my, my, my children. My son Caleb is sitting over here. My son Caleb, there's not anything he could ever do in his life that would make him not be my son. He's my son. Now, there can be things that either one of us could do that could break our fellowship. But it can't change our relationship. Same is true with God. As a believer, there's not one thing you can do today that can take away the fact that you're his child. Isn't that good news? Listen, your ability to be his child today is not rooted in your performance. It's in your identity in Jesus and all that he's already done. But what I do today can affect my fellowship with God. And so you need to ask yourself some questions. God, is there anything in my life that's hindering my fellowship with you? Any unconfessed sin? Any open rebellion where I'm disobeying God, I know it, He knows it, but I just won't surrender. Any impure or improper relationship in my life that is dishonoring Him and hindering my fellowship with God. See, the Lord's Supper is given to help us have an opportunity to just put pause for a minute and think about, man, am I where I need to be with God? Maybe you need to think about it this way. Can I look back in my past and see a time that I was closer to Jesus than I am today. I was more in love with Him. I was more in fellowship with Him. I was more intimate with God back then. than Listen, if you can look back and see a point in your life when you were closer and more intimate with God than you are today, can, can I let you in on a secret? He hasn't moved. If somebody's moved in the relationship, it's you. Examine that right now. Second second place we need to examine is we need to examine our fellowship with other believers. Paul specifically here in verse 17, I didn't read it for you earlier, but look at this verse on the screen. Paul says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you and in part, I believe it. Here's what Paul says. The word division there. It's a Greek word, schisma. We get an English word from it, the word schism. It means to be torn or to tear apart. Paul says, Man, here you are coming together to remember all that Jesus accomplished. And with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you guys have got relationships that are torn apart. How can you, he says, how can you come together and remember all that the gospel's done? And not get serious about making right relationships inside the fellowship. So here's the question you need to wrestle with. Is there anybody, brother or sister in Christ, maybe in this room, that when we move in a moment to take the Lord's Supper, before you come to the table, you need to go to somebody and say, Hey, I need you to forgive me. I've wronged you. Or I've been harboring bitterness in my heart. I need you to forgive me. I want you to listen to an excerpt from a book called Because We Love Him. It's written by my mentor, Clyde Cranford. I've quoted from it many times, those of you who've been here for a while. This is what Clyde says. In Christ, the thing that we least deserve is that which we have been most freely given, forgiveness. How then do we dare not forgive those who have wronged us? The person who has sinned against us is no worse a sinner than we are, therefore we must forgive. This is not to deny or minimize the hurt caused by another's sin, nor is it to excuse that sin. The sin was wrong. Being wrong causes bewilderment and sorrow, especially when the one who hurt us is someone we love. Our natural instinct is to question their love for us, but the ultimate question for the Christian is do I truly love them with a self-forgetful God, kind of love. Our love must be magnanimous, big hearted, lion hearted, like the love of Jesus Christ. We must rise deliberately above resentment, bitterness, and pettiness. This is the kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. If we love with this kind of love, remembering all that we have been forgiven, we'll forgive others. That's one of the reasons Jesus gave us this practice, to think about our relationships with each other. Now, you say, why is this such a big deal that I examine my life before I take this practice? Well, let me close with this verse. Here's why it's a big deal. Look what Paul said in verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That sounds pretty serious, right? What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I'll be honest. I don't know everything it means. Let me tell you what I think it means. This week, our country is going to celebrate its birthday on Thursday, July 4th, and many of us will hang American flags and celebrate the day that our nation was born. Others in our country and even around the world on that day will take our flag and they'll burn it. They'll step on it. They'll tear it. Now, we all know that a flag is just a piece of cloth. But the reason it's such a big deal when people do that is because they're not just dishonoring a piece of cloth. They're dishonoring the nation and the sacrifice of men and women who've purchased our freedoms that that piece of cloth represents. Here's what Paul's saying. When we just go through this like it's no big deal, when we just flippantly tag it on to the service, when we don't examine our heart, it's not just dishonoring a service. It's dishonoring the very life, death, and resurrection that this simple practice represents. It's a big deal. That's why. We take the supper to remember, to proclaim, to celebrate, to examine.